0: you might think, well, that's not overly hopeful. (laughs) We only sang the first part, so you'll have to sing the, the latter part where the psalmist cries out for help. But the Bible deals with us where we are. And again, this may not be your experience. I hope it's not to be surrounded by such, but it often is. And in all the divisive issues of the day, the Bible gets there first. So, questions of justice, racism, inequality, whether income inequality, wealth inequality, sexual identity, gender identity, questions about immigration, abortion, all these things are addressed in some way in the Bible. This becomes our standard. How do we think about these things? What does the Scripture say about these things? The matters that have shaken the Southern Baptist Convention, the Roman Catholic Church, the matters that gave rise to the Me Too movement, matters of sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, and abuse. They're addressed in the Scripture. And the Bible is clear on these things. And yet, these kinds of sins are not uncommon. Sadly, they're not uncommon in the RPCNA. These are not matters that are simply out there. Our families and our church, they're not immune to these things. And the mistreatment of others starts early in biblical history. And the fact that it happens, the fact that there is a Psalm 10, simply continues to add evidence to their fall in a state into which we find ourselves. Life among the ruins, in a state of sin and misery. But this is not the way things ought to be. So look at Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 comes early in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You guys have learned the books of the Bible in order, I hope. Uh, Here's my little teaching for the evening. Use a uh, printed Bible if you can. Avoid reading your Bible on your phone and other tablets. Part of it tells you where you find stuff in the Bible. Ruth is obviously at the beginning because there's a whole lot that comes after. You won't know that on your phone. So uh, that doesn't cost you any extra. (laughs) So here's Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And we'll end there at the end of chapter 2. I'm going to suppose for a moment you know the background of this. Ruth is clearly not an Israelite. She is from Moab. Uh, Naomi, at one point, was married, went to Moab, and her two sons married Moabite women. All the men in the family died, and Naomi has returned back to Israel. Uh, One of her daughters-in-law stayed in Moab, and Ruth came back with her. And now here they are, uh, two widows, and uh, in need. And so Ruth goes out to glean to gather grain left behind by the reapers. But a close reading of Ruth chapter 2 alerts us to the moral corruption characterizing the days of the judges and, sadly, may well act as a mirror for our times. Notice verses 8 and 9. Boaz assures Ruth by charging his young men, his workers, not to touch her. Listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Evidently, she's vulnerable. And there's something more to just touching. At one point in the story of Abraham, Abraham tells Sarah, for my sake, just identify yourself as my sister, not my wife, lest they kill me and take you. And one of the local lords, Abimelech or Abimelech, takes her takes her evidently into the harem. And God visits Abimelech in a dream and says, you're a dead man, because the woman that you've taken is the wife of a prophet. And he says, I didn't know that. He said, it's my sister. He says, right, and that's why I kept you from touching her. Proverbs 6.29 warns all men not to touch your neighbor's wife. So Boaz tells his young men something particular. Don't touch her. Don't abuse her. Don't take advantage of her. Notice verse 16. Pull out some of the bundles for, for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Again, he orders the, the men, the workers, not to reproach or rebuke Ruth. Don't harm her with words. Don't shame her. Don't humiliate her. Don't insult her. Don't in some way embarrass her. Why is she a target of this? Why does Boaz need to tell his workers this? Well, she's a foreigner. Immigration, the presence of the other in our own country, is an area of divisiveness. And we've learned historically how to use derogatory terms for the other. And you can imagine those. I don't need to tell you what they are. But throughout, she is a foreigner. She is Ruth the Moabitess. She's from Moab. She's aware of it. They're aware of it. Or is it possible because she's a woman? Either way, because she's a foreigner or because of a woman, Ruth has no standing. But those with power are not to use their position to belittle her or abuse her in any way. And then at the end of the chapter, notice Naomi's comment. Verse 22. It's good that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you be assaulted. This is the people of God. Ruth is not working in Moab. Ruth is not working in the fields in Philistia. Ruth is working in the fields around Bethlehem. And Boaz and Naomi both know there's danger. And this word that she uses, lest in another field she be assaulted, is translated elsewhere, killed, or pressured. It's the same verb that Ruth uses back in chapter 1, when Ruth tells Naomi, don't urge me or pressure me to go home. If you memorize memorized verses out of Ruth, that's probably one of the verses you've memorized. And treat me not to leave you or to forsake you. Don't urge me. Don't pressure. So Naomi understands that it's possible when there is no king in Israel and everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes that Ruth is vulnerable. And whatever the specific meaning, Naomi is concerned that Ruth could be harmed in some way. She's a Moabite. She's a woman, and she is vulnerable. And these verses make clear that Ruth is at risk, which is not unusual. The ancient world was hard. Uh, I had the privilege, when I was teaching full-time, I taught ancient history. And I take my class into some of the stuff that happened in ancient world. And I had a student one time go home and She had had ancient history at a different school in 8th grade. She showed up in ninth grade, had to take it again from me, went home and said, Hey mom, I think last year I got the PG version of ancient history. And I encourage people to read the Bible to their children. Because sin is shown as sin. Don't skip over parts. I had my students read stuff that they had never read before. I thought, that's a crying shame. How could you get the ninth grade from a Christian family and not have read the Bible cover to cover? And you just cover stuff. And when it comes up, you talk about it. Sometimes kids won't realize. They'll just hear the story. And then as you come back through it again, when they're a little older, they might think, hmm, there's something going on there. What's happening? Why is this in here? So, It was not unusual in the ancient world that people were treated this way. And sadly, it's still not unusual. Happens today. Go back to Genesis 3. Adam blames Eve. In fact, he does even more than that. He blames God. Have you eaten of the tree? Well, it was the woman you gave me. She ate and gave to me and I ate. So Maybe, Lord, if you'd given me Eve 2.0, this wouldn't have happened. That's really what he's blaming. He's blaming God, ultimately. But he puts Eve under the bus. After that, because of that, what do you get? Well, you get a curse, and it includes family strife. And part of that strife is that the husband will rule over his wife. Or actually dominate his wife. Keep reading in Genesis, you get to chapter 4. Lamech takes two wives. There's no rationale given, it's just he takes two wives. Go to chapter 6 and uh, hear about the Nephilim. Not going to tell you who they are, that's a lot of speculation. But we're told that the sons of God took as wives any they chose. This is not a two-way street. This is not a, I have a proposition for you. It's, they take whomever they chose. The point of that statement is the violence that happens. And it leads then to the flood. i have already mentioned Abraham endangers Sarah for his own safety, not once, but twice. Twice puts her at risk. Keep reading in Genesis, get to 29, chapter 29. Laban barters his daughters for work. Work seven years for me and you can have Rachel. No, actually, I'm going to give you Leah first. Work another seven years and you can have Rachel. I don't know if you're a woman. How would you like that to be your father's treatment of you? This is how you're going to get your husband. He's going to work for me, for seven years, and then marry you. You come to chapter 34, and Dinah, Jacob's daughter, goes out into the land of Canaan and is raped by Hamor, which leads to the extermination of the town. Chapter 38 is a truly grievous narrative. Onan abuses Tamar, his sister-in-law. And the key word in there, he's supposed to uh, raise up a descendant for his dead brother. He won't do that. He curtails that part. But we're told whenever he does this, which tells you he's doing it more than once. This was not a, I'm going to go visit my sister-in-law once, get her pregnant. He is taking advantage of her and, in essence, raping her over and over and over again. Same chapter, Judah visits a prostitute without any concern. And yet, when Tamar is found out to be pregnant, she's ready, well, he's ready to burn her at the stake. Start to see the difference, how women are viewed, how they're treated. Come to the book of Judges and things get even worse. Daniel Block, who is a professor of Old Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, notes that Israel has become Canaanized. That's his word. They have become like the Canaanites. Gideon, famous judge. I know children. I know guys named Gideon after you know this judge. He had 70 sons, because we're told he had many wives. Not two, but many. Essentially, he had a harem. And uh, <clears throat> Bloch says this about a harem. The harem violated the dignity of women, treating them as mere property, be exploited for the indulgence of the king without respect to their own equally endowed honor as images of God. Gideon is acting like a Canaanite king, though he says, I'm not going to be king. He names one of his children Abimelech. My father is king. And he has at least one concubine it's a second class wife, no rights. She's there for the use of the man. Jephthah, the son of that prostitute, sacrifices his own daughter rather than break his vow at the end of chapter 11. People have tried to explain that away. But I think the simple reading of the text is he did what he said. And the final story in Judges shows that Israel has become like Sodom. And it is hard to read. A woman is offered to protect the guests in the home. In fact, two women are offered. One is actually given over, she's abused all night and dies from her injuries. So, what do you discover? the early parts of the Bible, women are generally presented as objects. Useful to men. That's the ancient world. But all too often, it's the present one too. And it ought not to be this way. That is the world. The church Ought to be entirely different, and I give all that background to show how unusual Boaz is. In light of all of that, Genesis and Judges, you hit Ruth and think, where does Boaz come from? He's an entirely different man. He is countercultural. He shows care and concern for Ruth. He is kind to her, the foreigner, the Moabitess, the outsider. He addresses her with compassion, calls her my daughter, in verse 8. Assures her protection, provides for her needs, offers her water, blesses her, shares his lunch with her, protects and provides generously for her, Compared to how women were treated generally at the time, Boaz is remarkable. But he shouldn't have been. This is how all men should have been. But they weren't. But this is how we are to interact commonly. We are to treat others as we would want to be treated. We are to treat one another as fellow image-bearers. Boaz lives the gospel. So where sin spoiled the relationship between husband and wife, the gospel restores it. So instead of husbands dominating their wives, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The only way men will love like that is in Christ. Our flesh, we won't do that. And I speak from experience. Only in Christ do we find the capacity to love like that. Jesus is the model. Think about how he welcomed the marginalized. How he showed compassion for the weak the religious leader of the day, the Pharisee, why does this guy, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him? Jesus knew. But he showed compassion and welcomed her and used her as an example, actually, to rebuke the Pharisee. Look how she has loved me and you have not. So if you're married, men, Don't be harsh with your wife. I don't care what the provocation is. Do not be harsh with your wife. Peter tells us, rather, show her honor. This may be too obvious, but uh, have only one wife. I'm sad to say, in this day and age, though, it's not that obvious. If you think about getting married, you can only do it once, as long as she's still living. You get married, and you marry only one woman. Polygamy, polyandrous arrangements, concubinage, prostitution, pornography are not of God. Paul writes to the uh, Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality." Women are to be shown the utmost respect. Paul writes to Timothy, tells him to interact with older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. Families are to care for widows. We are not to leave widows to do for themselves. There's a responsibility of protection and care. And this is the standard to which we are called, to love our neighbors. Men, women, and children, we're to love them as ourselves. We're to walk in love. Ephesians 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, he's the model. As Christ has loved, so we are to love. We read earlier this morning from Philippians chapter 2 to look out for the interests of others. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the very things that Boaz did for Ruth. How would I want to be treated? If I were she, the roles were reversed. How would I want to be treated? But you and I, we won't do that until we see Jesus, the Son of God, our Redeemer, laying aside His privilege, laying aside His power, in order to serve us. In order to save us. While I love Boaz, I don't want to be like Boaz, as it were, I need to see myself in Ruth. We need to see ourselves in Ruth, as the foreigner, the marginalized, receiving comfort and kindness to which we are not Entitled. And when we see that we have been treated like that in Christ, then we'll be empowered by the Spirit of God to genuinely serve one another from the heart, showing particular care for the vulnerable. And they are all around you, they are in some of your families. They're at your workplace, and they are most definitely in this church. And some of them have come in here, like Ruth, to find refuge under the wings of the Lord. Verse 12 is such a wonderful picture. Ruth asks, why do you treat me like this? Because I know about you. I've heard your reputation. And you've come into this foreign land, into Israel, to find shelter under the wings of the Lord. So the question is, have you? Have you found shelter under the wings of the Lord? Can you say with Ruth, me too? Not as a victim. Of abuse, but as an object of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Have you come out of whatever circumstance you found yourself to come to the Lord to find protection and care and safety? I hope so. But if not, you can. He'll welcome you tonight. Tonight, for the very first time, perhaps, you can find shelter under his wings. And if you have been mistreated, and for some of you, this sermon may be hard, because you know this treatment. If you've been mistreated, coming under the wings of the Lord is the place of healing. That's where you'll be healed that's where you'll be restored. And if you have abused others, you can come under those same wings to find forgiveness. But this will demand more of you. You'll need to confess it. You need to repent of it you'll need to ask God to break your heart and make it new. And then you'll need to make amends. Whatever that looks like. I don't know. And you don't know. Until at some point you've had some interaction, perhaps, with your victim. What does, am- what does making amends look like? I don't know. Another piece of my story, I was one of the investigators of the matter of the church in Indiana that has recently left our denomination, along with Joseph Friedley and Kyle Borg and Stan Copeland. I hope to never revisit that kind of stuff, but I know it's still out there and it's hidden. Maybe here, I hope not. But if it is, don't let it stay hidden. I don't know your elders, but I know Ed. When Ed gets here, you can talk to him. And Ed will have your back. So if, women, you find yourself in a place where you feel trapped, you can talk to Ed and Nancy. Children, you have a place of appeal in your elders. If your parents have been overbearing, there is a way to get help. It's not easy. It can be really painful. But it can't stay hidden. But Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I trust that Springs Reformed Church will be known in your community as a place where the vulnerable are welcomed. As a church that will speak up for the endangered. And that your church will be a place of respite and care for those who need it. Lord, we need your help. We live in a culture, it's a culture of abuse in so many ways, it's in our entertainment. We're entertained by violence. We're entertained by sexual immorality. Some of us, we've been victims of that. And some of us have been the perpetrators of that. Some of us, we can't speak about it. We have buried it. So deep. But Holy Spirit, you're the Spirit of truth. And Jesus, you came to restore all things, to make all things new. And we're told that for the one who is in Christ, new creation. I don't need to be identified by my abuse. Not in Christ. I can find healing. And I don't need to be identified by the abuse I've perpetrated. Because in Christ, I can find forgiveness. And it's hard. but it's a faith. So Lord, by your spirit, bring healing. By your spirit, bring assurance of forgiveness. Where there's the need for reconciliation, bring that. And Lord, make this church a church where vulnerable and hurting people can come under the shelter of your wings and find healing. For Jesus, through you we pray, because you know this. You've experienced it yourself. And you've come to help us. In your name we pray, amen.